This is not the media. This is hell. The American dream causes climate change. And yes, even the coronavirus pandemic. That is the constant pursuit of to get ahead of whoever it is you are competing with, your coworkers, your neighbors, who knows. That constant drive for more stuff not only contributes to the warming of the planet, but the endless search for natural resources can release viruses that turn into pandemics like COVID-19. This continual economic growth with no end in sight is quickly becoming devastating to the planet and the people who live on it, namely us. But what can be done? We are told economic growth is necessary to have a comfortable and happy life. And anything but growth means a slide into dismal despair. Yet around the world, anti-growth movements are popping up trying to stop the kind of economic growth into everyday lives that has led to a global epidemic of unhappy loneliness where all human relations are mediated by money. We will consider the world as a less commodified, less financialized place to inhabit and the possibility of a far more meaning, meaningful existence. And a few when we talk to Georgos Kalas and Susan Paulson, co-authors of The Case for Degrowth, along with Giacomo Delisa and Federico De Maria. Georgos is Catalan Institution for Research and Advanced Studies Professor at the Institute of Environmental Science and Technology at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. Georgos teaches ecological economics and political ecology. He has studied how water has been mobilized to fuel the growth of cities and has devoted recent years to arguing against the folly of green growth. Georgos's latest work is a defense of the notion of limits. And you can follow Gyorgos on Twitter at G underscore Callis. That's K-A-L-L-I-S. Susan is professor at the Center for Latin American Studies at the University of Florida. Susan studies and teaches about gender, class, and ethno-racial systems interacting with bodies and environments. She has researched and taught in Latin America for 30 years, 15 of those living in South America among low-income, low-impact communities. Susan is currently studying changing masculinities among men who perform painful and dangerous labor in extractive industries. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed, live stream, podcast, radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Jess Lipka. Jess, how are you? I'm doing well. <laughs> That's good to hear. What's this week's uh, question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what's for brunch? <laughs> so, uh, what's for brunch? And the image that uh, Alex shared to go with that question is a protester at a resistance march from back in 2017 holding a sign that says, if Hillary was president, we'd all be at brunch, which is just un comfortable in many ways. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question, again, will win our new Grand Black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out the new Grand Black This Is Hell t-shirt and all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell. Again, uh, so uh, what's for brunch? At our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin and the moment of truth jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest jess the last time we talked it was election day i asked you what you would be doing on election night and you said you would probably be hanging out and drinking with friends so if you can remember th that far back as it seems like every week is 100 years long now how was your election night what did you do for election night um, yeah, I did. I, I did drink with friends. Uh, mostly just, yeah, watch inconclusive results come in. Nothing really. <laughs> How long did you stay up? Do you think? Can you remember? Yeah, I, I was in a, I, I was asleep by midnight. Oh, okay. I, I think I got to maybe around that time too, when I was just so exhausted by the whole thing, emotionally, physically. And yeah, the drinking part didn't really help as much last week much either. <laughs> So at this time last week, I had no idea I would put myself through watching election returns again. It, it really is a pointless waste of time. I could have simply ignored the returns until the weekend, get caught up on what happened then, and just be done with it. 
But as a pointless waste of time with gigantic touchscreens and tallies seemingly coming in every few minutes as if the next county's vote totals will determine the next president. No, wait, I swear, it's the next county after this one that will really decide who wins. As a pointless waste of time, it is the absolute perfect entertainment for drinking and getting stoned. After a while, you're no longer really paying attention to the monitor. If you are with friends, you're laughing and having fun, talking about a million things other than the election, or sharing your wild theories about the next four years. If you're alone, your mind drifts in countless directions, and the next thing you know, you're asking yourself, wait, who won Florida? I know I was watching the screen. I saw somebody touch the state of Florida, but who won Florida? And it doesn't matter, because we all knew vote counting would take forever. We all knew that different states would be counting votes in varying ways, which meant that the early returns were in no way indicative of what the vote totals would look like at the end. And there's the idiots like me. There we were, just sitting there, staring at the screen. And this year, not just one night, not two, but Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday... Because I swear these next returns in from Bucks County are going to be the decider. And in four years, I know stupid me, and I know I'll be right back there in front of some monitor waiting to see the next tranche of votes. And if they will determine, will the incumbents Kamala Harris be elected president, or will it be Senator Tom Cotton, who is currently supporting President Trump in his pursuit of lawsuits to overturn this year's vote? Yep. No doubt about it, this is hell. We got an email at chuckatthisishell.com from Spencer, who writes, Hey guys, couldn't help but notice you uh, your mention of the polls being terribly wrong once again in this election, and thought I would send over my new piece in Jacobin, explaining the obsolescence of random selection methods by polling institutions through the analogy of weather balloons. Keep it up. Spencer, the article is headlined, After the 2020 election, polling is dead. Whatever the final outcome of the election, we know one thing for sure. The pollsters screwed up royally, and the heyday of celebrity pollsters seems to be coming to an end. The article is by, again, Spencer, Spencer Roberts, a science writer, musician, ecologist, and rooftop solar engineer from Colorado, and most importantly, a listener of This Is Hell on Saturday as votes were still coming in and being counted. And it looked like Joe Biden would be claiming victory at any moment. Fox News started their analysis at the top of the hour with uh, new vote results. And then analysis by Frank Luntz, the Republican strategist who giddily brags about his ability to mislead the public. He of climate change because the Republicans thought global warming was too scary of a term. And the mainstream media took his marching orders and they've been double-timing them ever since. Whatever Luntz says basically goes with the mainstream media. Luntz explained that polling numbers are off because of suspicious Trump voters who do not want to tell pollsters who they support. Luntz believes that Trump's voters don't trust polls, so they won't tell them who they support. Luntz says he has spent a lot of time on the phone with Trump's voters, and he described how he had to assure them that the information they share will actually help President Trump in determining where to campaign or how to utilize his public advertising or political advertising resources. Once convinced that they can help Trump by telling the pollster who they are supporting, Luntz says those Trump supporters will finally give up the information that the pollster is seeking. However, most people working phones don't have that kind of patience, and polls underestimate Trump voters every time, and often the uh, phone callers are very undertrained. So, Trump votes get underestimated each and every cycle. Spencer writes in his Jacobin piece, Many pollsters remain convinced that this year was just another minor embarrassment and that all they need to do is to patch a few more statistical holes to get polling back on track. It might even work for a while, but it won't forever, Spencer concludes. Let's all hope this obsession with polls doesn't last forever because the incessant coverage of poll numbers for the last 15 months, if not more, by the 24-7 news networks and the national broadcast media news outlets has pushed from the news all the stuff that's happening that we should be talking about during the campaign season, what should be debate issues that should affect who we will support for president, but are not because of the focus the media has 
only on the polls. Voters do not select political candidates based on poll numbers. At least I hope not. If there are voters who base their vote on poll numbers, maybe that explains why we're about to have four years of a President Biden, if he lasts that long. We also got a very kind email last Thursday when I was out sick, and we got this email from Andrea, who writes, You all right? Please tell me so. I hope you, Chuck, as well as Alex, Daphne, Jess, and all new brave producers whose names I don't know or remember, but miss your voices. You guys okay? Love, live, Andrea. So I replied to Andrea, explaining that it was just a bit of a bad food. In reality, it's likely my guts being all too sensitive due to diverticulosis and how my stomach can no longer deal with frozen pizza or any breadstuffs with artificial preservatives in them. After I told Andrea I was fine, she replied, oh, okay, sorry for that. Hope you get better soon. Take good care of yourselves and have a nice weekend and a swift recovery. My best wishes to you all. Cheers, Andrea. Thank you for your concerns, Andrea. It it was truly appreciated last weekend. It, it really made my weekend. Anytime that somebody who I don't know, I only know over the air, I only know you every an hour for an hour every morning, it really, it really does feel really great when some one of you reaches out and says, I hope you're feeling better. So thank you very much, Andrea. Really, really, it did make my weekend. If you want to email us any of your thoughts, comments, or suggestions, send all of that kind of stuff to chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up, the case for degrowth. Jess will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, so uh, what's for brunch? So uh, what's for brunch? And when Alex posted this week's question from hell, he shared an image of somebody at one of the resistance actions, protests in early 2017, holding a sign that said, if Hillary were president, we'd all be at brunch right now. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray and black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out all the new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt and all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com, clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without your support, we got nothing. So thank you for everything that you do for us here on This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell on our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it to us. But we have to have your response in by the end of Thursday's show, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, when we will be announcing this week's winner, as we do most weeks. Jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from Hell, following our guest. Another end of the world is possible. This is Hell, we need economic growth. The economy needs to constantly grow, and we need to continuously consume for our economy to work best for us. We determine who our political leaders are depending upon whether the economy grew during their term in office. But what if economic growth, which we believe we need to continue our standard of living, is actually undermining that life by destroying the planet and imposing inequality, even poverty? Here to help us rethink our prospects under constant growth, Georgos Kallis and Susan Paulson are co-authors of The Case for Degrowth, along with Giacomo Delisa and Federico De Maria. First of all, I want to thank listener Andrew M. for suggesting Georgos and Susan as guests this morning. If you want to suggest a guest or topic of conversation for the show, email me at chuck at com, And if you, if we have your suggested guest or topic on the show, we will thank you personally on air as we are thanking Andrew M. right now. So thank you, Andrew M. Giorgos, welcome to This Is Hell. Good to be with you. Giorgos is Catalan Institution for Research and Advanced Studies Professor at the Institute of Environmental Science and Technology at the Autonomous University of Barcelona. And thanks for being on our show, Susan. It's great to be with you. Susan is professor of the Center for Latin American Studies at the University of Florida. Let's start with you, Georgos. You write that you make a case for attributing current ecological disequilibrium and a range of social ills to the relentless pursuit of growth. It would be naive to claim that this pandemic is proof of limits to growth, a messianic reckoning for our unsustainable ways. Giorgos, how can the relentless pursuit of growth contribute to the current ecological disequilibrium and a range of social ills, yet the pandemic is not 
proof of limits to growth? How is the pandemic not a messianic reckoning for the constant, unsustainable pursuit of growth? Yes, that's a good question. You might want to see it as a messianic reckoning, but I think we have to be a little bit careful with how we attribute things. So on the one hand, I can attribute uh, climate change, we can attribute material extraction to the constant uh, uh, increase of the economy, the constant increase of production and consumption of materials. Uh, 3% per year, which means that an economy doubles every 20-something uh, years, uh, double the amount of materials, double the amount of emissions. Uh, there is a very clear link then between economic growth and environmental damage, and there is a very clear link between economic growth and social damage in the sense that we sacrifice more and more of our public infrastructures, of our commons, uh, of uh, good conditions of link for everyone in the pursuit of a few decimals of uh, GDP growth. Now, do we attribute um, the pandemic to that? The pandemic is linked to the globalized economy and the globalized uh, machine of growth. It's linked in the sense that uh, the interaction between humans and, um, and wildlife has increased as we encroach uh, in forests and other ecosystems. And we know that this is the way through which uh, diseases are passing to humans and possibly is one of the transmission mechanisms through which uh, the virus passed from bats to humans. Uh, uh, also, the, the global economic machine is linked to the quick spread of the pandemic. It's not that we didn't have pandemics before, it's not that we didn't have pandemics with slower economies, but the speed with which this pandemic uh, spread out uh, basically f f followed the, the links of airplanes and the quick traveling of people and goods uh, uh, around the world. And uh, it's linked also, I think it is linked to the growth machine, though in one other uh, very specific way, which is the initial and continuous in some places uh, hes hesitation to do something decisively about the pandemic in the name of impacting the economy. And uh, what we see is that uh, the more people delay action, governments delay action to face the pandemic and sacrificing the economy in the short term, the more they damage the economy in the long term. And I think that's also the lesson of where we are heading with climate change. So, Susan, it sounds like what our situation is, is that globalization has played a major role, has been a major contributor in not only climate change, but also in the spreading of the pandemic. Is this all hindsight or were there concerns when globalization was just a theory, was just being implemented, that it would have a net negative impact, not just on climate change? I remember that being discussed. But were there discussions about globalization having an impact on public health or is this all hindsight as 2020? No, I, I think for the past hundred years, as industrialization has accelerated and been expanded through neocolonialization, development projects, etc., uh, there's been a lot of uh, alarm raised, a lot of scientific studies about ecological damage and also about growing social inequilibrium as people in very different power relations are exploited and drawn into the expansion of, of these growing economies, especially where I work in different parts of Latin America. So it's not new at all. Um, what's, what's different, I think, is that um, those concerns, those concerns with ecological damage, with health, with unequal and diminishing more risky health conditions as um, habitats are destroyed, um, are, are coming more into public debate now that many of us are drawn into a crisis in a vulnerable situation. It's, it's, it's no longer so easy to displace that to the poor and weaker parts of the world because the pandemic has spread to all corners. So, Georgos, well, you write that the way current economic systems are organized around constant circulation, any decline in market activity threatens systemic collapse, provoking generalized unemployment and impoverishment. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to be this way. What do you mean by mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be this way? I guess my bigger question is, why is the system we have, why is growth, why is it not resilient to crisis? Uh, it's not resilient because, I mean, it's, it's the way the capitalist system works and people have been studying how the capitalism works ever since uh, the 19th century. And it's a system that needs a constant profit, increasing profit to invest in making more profit 
it's like a bicycle that you know if you don't keep biking uh, you fall down uh, it's designed in the system which makes it of course very difficult uh, for many of us for many of us to imagine ways out of that because we know that when this system doesn't doesn't move then uh, it's uh, it's disaster time it's recession time it's depression time it's uh, what is happening now it doesn't have to be this way because there's nothing uh, let's say that the economic science or science in general or also our basic understanding and our capacity as societies to organize suggests that it has to be this way and it can't be another way. So there are many good proposals out there. There are many good uh, ideas. There are people already organizing and living their lives differently uh, so that we could uh, manage without growth, as uh, my friend, ecological economist Peter Victor put it in his book. So there are ways that we could manage without growth, but they are not easy, let's say, politically or socially. They need uh, fundamental transformations of uh, how the current system and the current society is organized. Susan, you also write that some of you might protest. Isn't the coronavirus crisis revealing the misery of degrowth? What is happening during the pandemic is not degrowth. The goal of degrowth is to purposely slow things down in order to minimize harm to humans and earth systems. And I know that, and you repeat this over and over in your book, how often people think that they must be harmed because, due to degrowth. So how is today's degrowth, Susan, different from the degrowth that you and Georgos and your co-authors propose? How would the degrowth you propose look different from today's degrowth, a degrowth that people are suffering from? Right, right. First, I, I want to add one more thing to Yorgos' excellent answer about why uh, we don't have to do things this way. My colleagues in anthropology have been studying how homo sapiens live together in communities. We've been modern humans, walking, talking uh, for 200,000 years. And during almost all that time in every almost every context, we've managed our resources in commons and our human resources in commons. And it's only been in the past few hundred years with the rise of colonial capitalism that this kind of constantly growing and constantly expanding material production system ha has happened. And so that's another reason why it doesn't have to be that way is simple historical fact and archeological fact as well as cross-cultural facts. Humans live in many other ways. It's hard to imagine that, but all right. Now to get to your great question about um, why isn't right now what's happening degrowth? I think one of the, the first confusions that many people I talk to have when they hear about degrowth is they think the point of degrowth is depressing or recessing profits and GDP. We're pretty indifferent to that. What we really want is to stop the growing use of materials and energy, the thermodynamic entropy that's growing all the time, right? It turns out that those, as Georgos described, those are very closely tied in history, right? With every dollar of GDP growth, more environmental impact, impact happens. So what we really want is less environmental impact and less social sacrifice. And it just happens that those are tied to economic growth. So right now what happens is we see these sort of paralyzed economic activities and some authors have, have jumped to the headlines saying, oh look, degrowth is happening, it's hell for everybody. And we're like, no. Degrowth are, are careful, thoughtful movements trying to slow down the damage to our economy and society so that we can live in more resilient ways, which is sort of the opposite of pushing as hard as we can on this, this speeding train towards disaster. And then when it crashes saying, oh, we've, now we've got degrowth, right? So that's, that's kind of a debate we've been having the last seven or eight months amongst different interpretations of of how we want to think about that idea and that movement towards degrowth. And Georgos, just to follow up again, uh, so um, is you know, people are saying that, well, economic growth, the argument has always been that this is just the natural state of being. Of course, the economy always wants to grow. As Susan was just pointing out, that is not the case. This is a new system of economic growth that human experience has never had before in all of our history. So is... <laughs> Is it any more fair to say, Gorgos, or, or is this a complete distraction from the topic? Is it any more fair to say that degrowth 
is what is natural, not economic growth? Or is that whole concept of natural within economics a distraction from the conversation? Yeah, I think the latter. I think it's a distraction. Whenever uh, I remember David Harvey saying, whenever you hear someone claiming something is natural, like look out for their ideology and what they want to dress as natural. Uh, so when someone says that economic growth is natural, I think it's pure ideology at play. Susan said that, that economic growth was not the common uh, state of things up until recently. But not only that, the very idea of growth and the idea that we have to grow the economy 3% every year is like an idea that starts with the Great Depression in the 1930s and 40s. People before were not talking about constant growth. Even Keynes was not talking about growth. He was talking about having the sufficient employment and increasing output to a certain level, but he wasn't talking about like, you know, increasing output 3% every year at the infinitum to infinity, which is like, a, which is like a very strange idea that emerges in the 50s and emerges in the context of the Cold War. So there, the Soviets start claiming that they will grow their economy 100% within 10 years. They throw like a spacecraft, you know, to space. The Americans get uh, uh, scared. They say, we're going to grow like 150%. There is, there is competition and there is a whole like uh, social model and the whole social contract of uh, avoiding uh, tough redistributive conflicts by expanding the pie a little bit more and more. And this lasts basically for 20 years, lasts until the crisis of the 70s. Ever since then, I mean, uh, growth is not, is not improving the, the well-being of the majority of people, let's say the 80s. Uh, wages have stagnated, uh, and I'm talking now about the US, but in other parts of the world they haven't uh, increased. Uh, we have increasing uh, inequalities, we have uh, increasing frustrations, a sense of social stagnation. So the economy keeps growing nominally, the GDP, uh, but without, uh, without an effect. And actually many people are arguing right now, and this is not the growth scholars, this is uh, economists who are looking at the economy without the ideological blinds of uh, trying to find the natural growth there. They are saying that big economies, uh, at some point, you know, it gets harder and harder to grow. So there is a point where they enter stagnation. And this seems to be what is happening now to an extent um, in the global north and the west. So it gets harder and harder to grow. And then we have more and more sacrifices in order to maintain a few points more of uh, GDP growth. So I would say the opposite is not natural. It's not natural. And precisely because it's not the natural way of doing things, it is being pushed now to the extent of destruction of our natural habitats and of ourselves in a sense. We are speaking with Georgos Kalas and Susan Paulson, co-authors of The Case for d Growth, along with Giacomo Dalisa and Federico Damaria. Susan, you write that even if Elon Musk flew the wealthiest 1% off to Mars, a drive for growth would persist in many, although not all, places and persons, even some of those most exploited and degraded by growth economies. The capacity to change course is constrained by particular modes of knowing and being that have become intertwined with expanding colonial capitalist and fossil fuel economies. What are the modes of knowing and being that have become intertwined with expanding colonial capitalist and fossil fuel economies that we may not recognize having been, been affected by colonialism, capitalism, and fossil fuels? Do we realize the extent to which our understanding of the world has been guided by those factors? And must we make that recognition in a path toward plan degrowth to realize the impact that capitalism, colonialism, and fossil fuels have had on our social relations? Wow, I love that question. That's what we, we're trying to think about is we're finding ways, new ways to be human every day. Um, it's really hard to change because it's not just a rational decision. Many people involved in degrowth have been talking about decolonization of the mind the visions we have, the desires we feel, the, the, self, the, the self-esteem, even our sexual desires that feel so intimate in our bodies and our minds are all tied up with the kind of worldview that has been sold to us and institutionalized into us depending on our class position and, and our racial national position in this world. And so it's pretty hard to to pull those things out of us. Um, nevertheless, I think in moments of great conflict and change, like we're living through now, is 
is a wonderful time for that kind of change because it's one of the few moments where things really sort of come into, into tension and new light can shine in. And I'll just mention two of the sort of ways of thinking that are hard to overcome. One we call binary, binary hierarchies, right? It's a way of thinking that humans dominate nature, we're better than nature, other nature, that man over women, white people over, over non-white people, Western science over other ways of knowing, which is sort of dividing the world into two categories and always thinking that one should sort of decide and ex decide how to do things and, and use the other one as resources to get them done. And one other piece I just want to mention that I'm particularly interested in is this belief that, that humans are naturally greedy and selfish and individualistic and competitive. And it's, it's so common in our stories, our, our, our movies, our school books. Um, they talk about the selfish gene, homo economicus, this, you know, kind of innately selfish creature. And again, anthropologists are saying that's ridiculous. If homo sapiens were really selfish individuals, we wouldn't have survived a few decades, right? That's not, we're not fast and strong and, and smooth enough to survive as, as loners, right? It's really communication and collaboration that's allowed us to create worlds and live in them. And yet somehow we've been convinced in the modern world that we are sort of innately selfish and competitive and, and just want more and more. And so I think those things, th those bodily and mental challenges, they're, they're in some ways harder to change than just changing policy or an economic program. And on the other hand, they're more accessible in the fact that we can all start changing them this minute, this, this day in our relationships and in our attitudes and interactions with the world around us. Susan, let me just follow up with you on that. So does degrowth mean, because you know, you've heard this a million times. So does degrowth mean an end of individual rights? Does it mean an end of individualism? And if we all know, as you point out, and you see this even in right-wing circles, we all know that working together works. What is the attraction to this kind of hyper-individualism? Well, <laughs> um, first of all, I think that question, does degrowth mean an end to individual rights? One of the things that we've all been struggling with within degrowth conversations and communities is to stay away from one programmatic model to say degrowth is X, we should fight for Y. And rather think about sort of changing the the way the playing field is is set out to create opportunities for more worlds to emerge that we may not even know. Right. So it's not so much instructive, but those worlds, I'm I don't want to attack individual rights and get rid of them. What I would like to do is create a scene where the worlds I know from living many years amongst Andean communities and Amazonian communities, that those worlds also have a way to thrive. And in those worlds, people aren't thinking in the same way we are about individual ownership and property and success. By nature, they're managing their watersheds, their hunting forests, their rivers, communally, and it wouldn't make sense to own it. Like, this is my strand of the river. I can only fish here. I mean, it, everyone everyone looks after it together, right? Um, so that's what I say. Rather than attacking individual rights or selfishness, let's create a world where a whole, a whole rainbow of collaborative forms can thrive better and coexist with the contemporary way of thinking that that sort of has come to dominate Western societies now. Georgos, why doesn't the monetization, the commodification of everything lead to the incentivization and motivation that markets promise? Why doesn't a system of monetizing and commodifying everything, why isn't that effective <laughs> and efficient like people have been telling us it will be? 
It's not because obviously the value of some things is not, uh, in, in many cases, it's uh, antithetical to, it's the opposite of uh, getting them for money, no? So there are many things that we can start with love, uh, we can think of, uh, of pride, we can think of friendship. I mean, you wouldn't like to pay to have friends, right? Uh, or maybe some people would like, I don't know. <laughs> Nowadays, no? On social media, you'll find everything. Uh, but in principle, if you start paying for friendship, then something uh, irreversibly is lost in friendship. And in, in many relations that uh, we have as humans in social relations, co commodifying them is not that it just changes the means of exchange of or rewarding these relationships. It changes the very nature of the relationship. And uh, the very nature of it goes against uh, the logic of profit, goes against the, lo the logic of exchange for profit. So a lot, uh, many social relations have a logic, for example, that in the growth literature we like a lot to talk about, but it has been with many human societies. This is the logic of gift, exchanging gifts. Uh, in our society, there is like some remains of that. Now we exchange gifts in Christmas uh, uh, or in birthday, but many societies, were, their, their whole logic and their whole uh, economies were based around the logic of gift exchange. It doesn't mean that they were benevolent, only the gift exchanges, although they were angels, no? No, they had wars also. Maybe they were exchanging too many gifts and, uh, <laughs> and they were getting in trouble. But what I mean is, uh, I want to emphasize the point that Susan made, that there are many different worlds and many different logics. And uh, uh, reducing everything down to the bottom line of uh, money uh, is not only destructive for the planet, but it's also destructive of uh, some intangible qualities that uh, give meaning, I think, to human life. Let me follow up on that, Georgos, because... Uh... Yesterday, we or last week, we celebrated Election Day by talking to Ruth Kinna, who wrote the book, The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism, because we thought that would be a great way to celebrate Election Day here in the U.S. <laughs> the following day, while votes were still being countered, we spoke with Adas Tier, uh, author of The People's Guide to Capitalism and Introduction to Marxist Economics, because we were still celebrating the American election. So they both expressed how much they enjoyed the different ideas, healthy debates, many possibilities of both anarchism and Marxism. Giorgos. So mm -hmm. why do ideas like anarchism, like Marxism, like degrowth promise so much but are so uncertain? How can their promise be more certain? I think that's a, that's a matter of, uh, of, of political organization and, and, and social forces. And this, I think, uh, it's not something that can be responded in the abstract and uh, intellectually, it's something that it's made on the ground by people uh, organizing, fighting in different arenas, including elections, I think, but uh, definitely not only elections and not mostly elections. Um, this is what we try to illustrate in the last chapter of our book, which is a, it's, it's a book published in a series that they have to be very short and provocative books, so we had very few pages to make our case, but what would be the strategies of uh, organizing for the growth? And we are open again to different strategies, but we emphasize that there has to be an articulation between our personal chains, our coming together in common to produce, consume, and live differently, and then organizing politically so that the different ways that we do things uh, can be universalized and be available to everyone. Now, this still sounds abstract, but I think it is something that is uh, made in the ground. I mean, I'm, I'm having in mind here a very strong uh, cooperativist movement we have in Barcelona and Catalonia, like people uh, running uh, electric cars as a cooperative, uh, building houses as cooperatives. Then the same people organized, occupied the squares, and then uh, we had the municipal, uh, uh, our, our, our mayor right now was uh, born out of this movement and represents this movement, and it's called uh, Barcelona in Comum, which means the commons of Barcelona. Um, so this is where I see the hope. But yes, of course, we, we, are, fi we are fighting against something that it's uh, extremely strong, extremely bigger and much more intricate and complicated and interwoven in, in ways that it's not easy to, to change it from one day to the other. Susan, you write that the intersection of contemporary innovation with ancestral wisdom is evidenced, for example, in Bhutan's commitment to building gross national happiness, not directed toward GDP growth, but 
instead toward the attainment of meaning and fulfillment in harmony with Buddhist spiritual values. In parallel processes, millennial Christian traditions of simple communal life are being revitalized in contexts ranging from neo-monastic communities of young evangelicals who eschew consumerism in favor of a collective life of spiritual growth to Latin America visionaries exploring Pope Francis' call for a radical transition toward integral ecology. What explains, because this gets back to another guest that we had on the show recently, what explains degrowth's connection with religion and spirituality? Because yesterday's guest, activist and political theorist Muhammad Abdu, he brought up spirituality and religion as they relate to decolonization. So what explains degrowth's connection with religion and spirituality, and is there a connection between degrowth and decolonization? Absolutely. I think most spiritual traditions are deeply about our values and and our paths our paths to this world, right? The way in which humans relate to each other and to the world around them. Um, imbuing that with some type of maybe moral or traditional meaning. And I think I think um, these cases, I'm really glad that you brought together those cases. Bhutan is a really outstanding case because it's this very explicit national effort to make those very long-standing traditions of, of peacefulness, of respect, of equilibrium come to the forefront um, in decisions about managing the nation's historical development. Um, in the U.S., it's harder, and I, I would say that in – I don't want to overstate this, but in some ways, the worship of individual success, uh, economic success, professional success, the sense of sort of responsibility and achievement built in them has become a moral and spiritual uh, goal in itself for many Western Communities built in, built into religion, as we've seen already in sort of this, you know, the spirit of capitalism and the Protestant ethic, um, and so they sort of coexist. And and what I've seen in Latin America is is that what we might call spiritualism, it's not necessarily related to going to church, but people's practices, let's say, in managing a watershed and cleaning the irrigation canals communally and sharing the water are deeply embedded in rituals, um, rituals that are expressed in, in what we might call cosmological uh, language. Um, and so this idea of how we live together, how we live in an environment is, takes many spiritual forms. Um, and again, I go back to the idea that letting these different forms coexist is great. I don't want to impose one new one, just um, acknowledge that those, right, that different values and moral traditions can be meaningful ways to shape lives. Georgos, you write that the time is ripe for us to refocus on what really matters, not gross domestic product, but the health and well-being of our people and our planet in a word, degrowth. How does GDP not reflect the health and well-being of the planet and its people? How good, how good are economic metrics at determining the health and well-being of the people and the planet? Yeah, I mean, I don't have to say much, but compare like what's going on in the US and Europe right now with the health of the people to what's going on in Vietnam. Uh, they have zero dead, dead people from the coronavirus the last, I don't know how many months. Uh, it's obvious that the GDP didn't protect us from what happened. It's also obvious, I think, that the, the obsession with GDP was, uh, and the economy was to an extent uh, part of our problem. I mean, the, the hesitation to, to lock down and close the borders quickly at the beginning when it was clear that the pandemic was coming. Even, I mean, the hesitation right now, I'm reading like 15 million minks. I didn't even know that Denmark has 15, 15 million farmed minks, you know, the Denmark, Denmark, the social democratic civilized so-called paradise, you know. They have 15 million minks that they apparently kill to make uh, furs. And right now they got the new strain of coronavirus that they, they are worried that it might escape and it might not be 
uh, addressed by the vaccine. And even now, you know, they are like we cannot stop them. Uh, the mink uh, economy, many people depend on that. Jobs depend on this. Uh, other countries are not closing the borders to Denmark, you know, because like would we close borders again? So we see the same pattern playing over and over again. Um, this doesn't mean that the response is just to lock down and stop uh, doing things or stop living our lives, but it means that we need uh, more reasonableness. Putting uh, health and well-being first, and putting health and well-being first, uh, we have healthy humans and happy humans that they also produce uh, things that they enjoy and that they make sense to them. So then we have also a healthy economy. Right now, what we had is in uh, in, in the fear of damaging in the short term uh, some economic activities, uh, we are damaging the economy and the health of the people in the long run much more than uh, was necessary and much more than it has been damaged in other countries that they have much less income than uh, our part of the world. Uh, so in that sense, uh, the obsession with GDP has become a huge obstacle. It has become a huge obstacle because the economists and uh, the governments are completely uh, lack of ideas of how do you manage an economy that has to go in lockdown for two or three months, you know? How do you provide for the people? How do you secure the basic necessities? How do you move resources to produce masks uh, and oxygen and uh, trace, trace and track tests that we might need for a year? How do we put all the work of the people that now are sitting in their places because they can't work in restaurants and bars? How do we direct it somewhere else? But these questions, no one has asked them. No economist has seriously asked them. No government uh, in uh, the so-called uh, developed world knows what to do. And at the end, you have a collapse. So that's how the system works. Like, Pursuing GDP at the expense of human health and well-being, uh, growth, 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 until there is not and it collapses, you know. So this is what we are trying to put on the table of, of the growth. Let's try to escape from this, uh, from this catastrophic uh, trap. Uh, Susan, uh, you also write that existing resources can be shared and invested differently to secure good living with less money, less exploitation, and less environmental degradation. Is degrowth less expensive and does it provide more services for the public than growth does? How can more and better services be less expensive? Great question. Uh, first of all, Yorgos did a nice uh, job of pointing out how the, the differences between GDP and well-being have become so, so obvious during the pandemic. I'd like to add that also for decades now, it's been very clear to scholars and statisticians that there's a very weak correlation between GDP growth and the things that most societies say we desire. Let's say higher rates of longevity, literacy, equality, security, political participation, mental health, happiness, or maybe lower rates of incarceration, obesity, homicide, suicide, infant mortality. I. I live in the US, we have one of the highest GDPs um, in absolute terms and per capita, and yet we're actually quite low. We're, we're often behind dozens of other countries in all of those other indicators that I mentioned here. And so I think that's just empirical correlations are strong argument. We continue to think that GDP is the only means to getting everything good, but when we look across countries, High GDP countries don't have better average levels of those than medium GDP countries or even low ones in many cases. And also as countries grow, they don't, they don't necessarily improve in those terms. All right, so how can we live good costing less? How can we get those things we're looking for? Longevity, literacy, you know, less homicide and suicide without just getting more and more cash. The obvious way is to work directly towards them instead of saying we need to get more cash and so that we can have better mental health. We, we say, oh, well, wait a minute. Can't we just work directly towards mental health instead of assuming that higher incomes is going to make everyone happier and healthier? Um, so, all right, back to how can we get good living with, with less cash? I think we agree, everyone in degrowth movements agree that we need to reduce the overall amount of matter and energy that's transformed every day by human economies. But that doesn't mean that we have to reduce everything. We can reduce you know, whatever, 
casinos and tour boats or whatever, but maybe we can actually increase investment in caring and sharing resources and, and, and features that matter like health, education, nourishment, um, and that we're certainly more than wealthy enough um, to do that. So that's some of the, some of the paths forward. We have been speaking with Georgos Kallis and Susan Paulson, co-authors of The Case for Degrowth, along with Giacomo Delisa and Federico DeMaria. We want to thank listener Andrew M. for suggesting Georgos and Susan as guests this week. I've got one last question for each one of you. And as we do with every one of our guests, I promise that our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, <laughs> or our audience is going to hate your response. And Georgos, let's go with you first. Can we address climate change? Can we address the pandemic? Can we address all of the challenges and social ills we face today without challenging or addressing globalization? Because every conversation I've seen about the pandemic I, and again, these, this is anecdotal, and this is all from mainstream media, huge outlets. You don't hear discussions about, you know, maybe globalization caused the pandemic. Maybe globalization caused climate change. Can we address either one of those, Georgos, without addressing globalization? In, uh, in the growth, we talk about relocalization, which doesn't mean like... Uh, going back to each one of us living in our towns and villages and not traveling, but it means like, the, the way Susan put it, it doesn't mean like getting away with something completely and going to the other extreme, but it means like letting letting alternatives emerge. So we do, we do emphasize a lot the importance of um, reinvesting in local economies, uh, reinvesting in local commons, uh, reinvesting in... Uh, in uh, relations of proximity, food networks uh, of proximity, uh, uh, traveling and vacations of proximity. So to go to your answer, I think, uh, to, to your question, I think the answer is clear. Globalization is part of the problem and uh, the acceleration that comes uh, with globalization, uh, the acceleration of traveling, the acceleration of our, of our day life, the acceleration of extracting things out of the earth, the acceleration of sending things to the air. All these phenomena are interlinked. And I think um, a first important step of providing a real alternative to globalization is working again to reconstitute uh, local human scale economies. All right, Susan, our question from hell for you is, does the American dream cause climate change and pandemics? And if so, how can we address uh, an American dream that causes climate change and pandemics. Wow. <laughs> That's a hellish question, Chuck. Um, Thank you. What is the American dream? I mean, that's the question. One of my heroes, Robert Reich, has a great argument about inequality for all, where he says the United States, Right now, the United States has growing inequality, uh, exploitation, and problems, but we don't need to say, you know, the American dream is trash, let's follow North Vietnam or something. He looks back to the mid-20th century where there was actually policies in place that allowed our country to have, to really be leaders in the world in terms of moving towards um, income and wealth, equity, intergenerational mobility, education for all. We got to be one of the best educated workforces in the, in the world. Um, so there was this process going up into, as Yorgos mentioned, about the sort of the 70s that went into this crisis, and then the 80s, greater inequalities began to emerge, right? And so in some ways, if you think about the American dream as chances for equity, participation, opportunity, certainly we can do that. If you think about the American dream as something that's emerged more explicitly in recent decades of massive accumulation of wealth, of just untold uh, riches, and also grotesque increase in consumption just by everybody, right? M more and more cars, more and more clothes, you know, changed out every month and, and things like that. 
Um, if that's the American dream, it's tough to figure out how to keep it going on a finite planet. But if the American dream is something we think of maybe a longer term thing of participation in equity, um, I think what we can do is invest in natural and human resources as the wealth of our, of our nation. And we can certainly develop them in a way that, that makes equitable and sustainable well-being for many more of us. That's a really good question. What does the American dream mean anymore? Because one set of politicians may use that phrase, the American dream to mean one thing, and another set of politicians may mean it in another way, may define the American dream in another way. That's a really interesting point of view. Susan and uh, Georgos, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show this week. And again, thanks to listener Andrew M. for suggesting both of you to be as, be a guest this week. Georgos Callas and Susan Paulson are co-authors, along with Giacomo Delisa and Federico DeMaria of the book, the Case for Degrowth, you must check out this book. It is really interesting. It's short. It's very thick, even though it is very thin. It has a lot of information, and it's a great way to get you introduced to the idea of degrowth. And for those of you who do know already about degrowth, it is a great expansion on your knowledge. So thanks, thank you both thank very you. much, Susan Giorgos. I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. Thank you. I'm grateful for you inviting us to this conversation. All right. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about evil. It's all about money. <laughs> Let's do that again. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, so uh, what's for brunch? Uh, so uh, what's for brunch? And when Alex posted that question, he shared an image, which is someone holding a sign at a resistance rally in 2017 that says, if Hillary Clinton were president, we'd all be at brunch by now. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new Grand Black This Is Hell t-shirt. You can check out the new Grand Black This Is Hell t-shirt and all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we've got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can email it to us. You can tweet it to us. But we must have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Jess, do you know how listeners are answering this week's question from hell again? So uh, what's for brunch? Yeah, so what's for brunch? This week, um, Chris L., Yes. Says a bottle of vodka getting good use in a plate of increasingly cold eggs. <laughs> nice. Shane M says, I'll take the Joe Biden as a Benjamin Harrison Republican special, please. I saw this uh, woman on TV one time. She was like 112 years old. And she said, they said, how do you stay uh, so healthy? And she says, every morning, the first thing I do in the morning is a shot of whiskey every morning. So I was like 20 seven and i was like well she's a genius i'll try that <laughs> took it to heart <laughs> four yeah. days it lasted four days you can't do a shot of whiskey the first thing in the morning that's ridiculous no. <laughs> i'm sorry go ahead um, uh kurt e says uh brazilian steak on a plate made by displaced indigenous peoples washed down with the tears of exploited children from the global south that sounds delicious <laughs> i think you could get that over on lawrence avenue <laughs> um zach n says uh, leftovers plus eggs with a side of CBD gummies in the shape of donkeys and elephants washed down by V8 Bloody Mary mix. No vodka, though, because, you know, Russia. <laughs> Yuck. Chris Z says the salt of the earth. <laughs> Day P says dust, ashes, and a fresh and a fresh mimosa to wash it down. Aaron B says Zuckerbergers and chocolate uh, musk shakes with a side of Bezos. <laughs> no, <Nice. laughs> that sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Steve K says ramen noodles. Uh, Scraps K says hard hard boiled eggs. Eric uh, T says intersectional empire and murder. <laughs> nice. That sounds like a delicious brunch. <laughs> um, I think and, that's an, I think that's an all you can eat actually. Yeah. <laughs> and just again, our question is, what's for brunch? Um, Cody K says what I had yesterday and what I will be having tomorrow and thereafter a spicy meal of discontent and washing it down with the tears of the opposition. Well, a lot of tear drinking. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's dark. Um, <laughs> Mark, Marco G says gluten free, sugar free, nut free and vegan friendly survival crackers. Okay. <laughs> Justin H says Mideast blood sausage. Terry C says coal and 
finally, uh, Fabio L says children in cages. Uh, oh God! <laughs> What's for brunch? Children in cages? Fabio, you are not going to be winning the question from hell. Not because that's. I mean, that is a fantastic answer, but because Fabio keeps winning, I think he's won like three or four times in the last couple of years. By the way, one of the people who answered our question, so uh, what's for brunch? I'm not going to tell you which one it was, but I can tell you that they are an expert on that kind of topic, what's for brunch, as they are a very, very successful, famous chef and has been the personal chef for... The great one, Wayne Gretzky. Go figure. That guy answered the question from hell. We'll have even more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner of one of our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirts at the end of Thursday's show. Following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, you can see our t-shirt, an entire new line of gray on black merchandise that come that uh, has become very popular. Check it out right now at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support. Thanks to Kilter for your tithing light commitment to This Is Hell. And a very special thanks to Andrew T., who also also went to thisishell.com, Click on, clicked on support, and showed his appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Jess, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow we have anthropologist Anna Lowenhop sing on the Stanford Digital Project Feral Atlas. So Feral Atlas invites you to explore the ecological worlds created when non-human entities become tangled up with human infrastructure projects. You can find out more at feralatlas.org. And you want to tell people who's on Thursday's show or you got it over there? I do. Right. Yeah. Um, Thursday, uh, Polish politician uh, Zofia Maliz on Poland's anti-abortion push in the statement, our bodies, our lives, our country, the world. And of course, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to Alex Jerry. Thanks to Jess Lipka. Thanks to Yorgos and Susan staring into the abyss so we, you don't have to. This is hell. This is hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>